Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to FYI. I'm Simon, one of Arc's genomics analysts. This week, we're sitting down with Joe Bakhti, the CEO and co-founder of QuantGene, a uniquely patient-centric molecular diagnostics company. The focus of our conversation is around earlier cancer detection using a personalized liquid biopsy technique and an innovative come-to-market approach that circumvents traditional insurance dynamics. So, you know, I'm sure many of our listeners who follow our research are aware of, of how closely we're focused on understanding the liquid biopsy space, particularly for earlier cancer detection. So if you don't mind, I'd like to start by setting up QuantGene, its founding, some of its core values and principles, maybe a little bit around you know, yourself and the rest of the team. And then at the end of that, I, I want to hone in on the commercial strategy and how you guys are thinking about precision medicine more holistically, because I think that is one of the most unique and exciting concepts that I've read about when doing research on the company. Yeah, thanks, Simon. That's, I think that's always a good starting point, how Quantine actually came to be. And my personal background is I grew up in a very medical and life science family, both parents and my brother and other family members are you know, in life sciences, I kind of, I always joke, I grew up in a lab with my dad, probably saw my first PCR machine with like four or something, <laughs> and then decided to go, you know, a little bit of different route after seeing a lot of medicine up to, you know, 19, and then went into economics and business for quite a while, but never lost, you know, touch with that world. And then in 2014, I got through a family member kind of more deeply involved on the math and statistics side of genomics when they investigated a way of doing something in cancer detection that was more centered around single cell sequencing and circulating tumor cells as opposed to cell-free DNA. Mm. And that kind of hooked me because I realized, you know, once I was digging deeper into cancer mutational patterns and that question, how could you identify if I give you a random DNA from a cell we isolated from your blood sample, if that cell was actually a tumor cell or not. And that sounded like a trivial question first to me. I thought, well, you have a bunch of tumor-associated mutations and you just check if there's one of them on there. But when it came down to the details, what are these tumor-associated mutations? How many do you have of them and how do you even know that? And we dug deeper into, you know, these very large sequencing data sets of sequenced tumor tissue to understand what is the empirical basis of making these claims that something even is a tumor mutation. And then I realized we are talking about hundreds of thousands of targets or millions, if you, depending how you count. Mm. And mm-hmm. that is an absolute non-trivial question. And then, you know, the whole math and machine learning part started. And that then I basically got 
a good feel for the industry, who's working on what, also on the academic side in Berkeley and Stanford and Geneva and some other places. And then it became quickly clear to me that in that space, you still have enormous gaps, white spaces of research and R&D, where just no one is focusing on, in my opinion, very important questions. And that kind of triggered the foundation of Quantine because I saw opportunities all around us, you know, in, in this math and statistics space and in genomics. And so we started with that question, you know, how would you see if something is cancer if you just look at one DNA and how would you make sure you can be sure it's cancer or it's not cancer? And that's mm -hmm. still one of the core components, one of the core tech components of Quantine. I see. So maybe one way to kind of draw it up is you can think about it in terms of kind of consecutive sets of random sampling problems, right? Ostensibly, if you're doing early cancer detection, you have a very small tumor that is sloughing off, you know, tumor-derived cell-free DNA fragments that are swimming around in the bloodstream. And so you're taking a blood sample. And so the first sampling problem is whether or not there's even tumor-derived material in that blood draw, right? And exactly. then the second problem is, okay, well, let's say we do have it you know, what is the likelihood that we can call it above, you know, some threshold that we can be sure that we've called it? Is that, you know, a fair way to conceptualize it? Yeah, I think that's pretty much it. So even at this smallest, even pre-cancerous stage, if you have a tiny tumor of like 100 million cells or something, which is pre-stage one, even then, if you just do some basic math, you know, if you take one tube of blood at 0.2% of your entire blood circulation, that tumor of 100 million cells, you know, the turnover of these cells, you can estimate, you know, you have at least a million, probably more cells dying per day because it's instable tumor cells. And then you divide this by 24 hours, right? If you assume roughly in a half-life of one hour of that cell-free DNA in the blood. And so you get to a very significant number of copies you will have in the sample. So I was very clear that you will definitely have a significant amount of tumor DNA, like more than one copy, in a blood sample, even at the earliest stages with very high probability. But, you know, I was always very clear that having one copy in a blood sample is a totally different question from seeing it. Because mm -hmm. if you know anything about chemistry and laboratory processes, you will lose massive amounts of that stuff before you even start, even if you think you totally optimized it. And then, you know, if you don't lose it, you still have to see it on the sequencer. And you will still have potentially you know, tens of thousands of non-tumor DNA copies mixed into that thing. And so I was very clear that you know, we need to massively ramp up sequencing precision by many magnitudes based on the 2015 tech status. Mm -hmm. And to do that requires a lot of software and you know, signal processing expertise that wasn't there back then. And you also need to understand your targets. Because you need to make sure if you want to have a single molecule precision in sequencing, it's a cost and economics and technical issue. So you can't do whole genome sequencing. You have to be much more targeted because it's just cost prohibitive to do whole genome. And so if you have to pick your targets before you even start looking at certain positions, how do you make sure you're looking at the right positions? Mm -hmm. And that question is much more, you know, the difficulty is not if you have a conventional standard pancreatic you know, two more with a bunch of KRAS mutations that are well-known, KRAS-12G or something. How do you make sure you find that? Well, you just look at KRAS-12G at that location. The question is, if you don't find any of the top, you know, seven KRAS mutations, what is the probability that it's still a two more that does not have these mutations? 
And in many cancer types, pancreatic is an exception because it's very compressed in these kind of seven KRAS. But in many other tumor types, it's much higher, you know, mutational heterogeneity that you find. And that means it's not so much the question if you have that specific mutation, can you find it? The question is, if you don't find it, what are the odds it's still cancer? So what's the odd that some weird mutational pattern that is not like a no-brainer type of mutation? And then you need to do some pattern recognition in very large data sets to say, to ask the question, you know, what is the minimum number of mutations you actually have to look at in order to still have a maximum coverage across all tumor variations? Right. And that right, was right. kind of the, that's a key insight that I think still to this day, no other company has really, you know, maximized their expertise around. And for us, it was always clear that this is the first important step in liquid biopsy. If you want to get to extreme precision, you need to solve that problem. Mm-hmm. Well, no, and I, I think it's a good thing to bring up the issue of, of signal versus noise and trying to parse through that information to have a clear result to give an oncologist. And you know, before diving into the technical details, I absolutely do want to talk about some of the ways that you're getting around these issues, especially as it comes to the actual design of the assay. Maybe just to take a step back and talk about how, you know, the signal versus noise problem demands a really high level of expertise per scientist, especially on the bioinformatics and the back end side, especially as it applies to, you know, building out a machine learning architecture. So, when you were building out the team of QuantGene and, and looking at some of the values of the individuals or maybe how they were, you know, very forward looking, I just want to make sure that we kind of reset and talk about, you know, that trajectory for the company and then maybe also touch on a little bit of the commercial strategy and maybe introduce Serenity, I think would be an interesting thing for listeners. Absolutely. So on the team side, here we get deep into our innovation philosophy, like how do we actually innovate and how were we able to build this sequencing, this level of precision with a relatively small team and comparatively small funding. I would say like comparatively because it's for normal startups, still a lot of money, but Mm -hmm. in our space, not. I mean, the interesting thing here is that I love that space we are in because it's so new and disruptive. You need to combine very different capabilities. One of our most important people, I mean, they're all important, but one of our most important is our director of engineering, who is just a software wizard, right? He's like very good in complex software, but had no bio background. So all he was good at was complex software systems, actually with an e-commerce financial background. And that capability of having an extremely good software team that can build very deep and complex software systems is much more important than having a bioinformatics expertise. Mm. And then we added, because what we are building here is not conventional bioinformatics. We built the entire signal processing system from absolute scratch. And so we have some very skilled bio PhDs on the team with sequencing background, but they were also not what you would call bioinformatics specialists. They understand sequencing very well and they're quickly read up on bioinformatics. But what, you know, when you look at our system and the technology we build, probably 5% of that is conventional bioinformatics and 95% is all built from scratch. And that, you know, in the end, what you need is smart engineers who understand number systems, complex number systems, and who have a very hands-on approach in debugging specific things. 
and come up with testing systems, how to you know, stress test these things. So I think, and maybe Arc is a great place to talk about that. You know, there is always this misconception, this thinking and analogies. Oh, you do sequencing, therefore you need a lot of sequencing experts. Well, not so much, because if you want to do something completely new in sequencing, maybe conventional sequencing thinking holds you back. And that was especially true in software. And so we have some kind of very sophisticated, more old school laboratory technologists who are actually, in my opinion, genius, right? So they do a great job and that's more old school knowledge. You have to understand your polymerase behavior and you have to understand your primers and their experience counts. But when it came to software, you know, I think it was a very good move that we had people who are actually not bioinformatics specialists and who are now, I would claim, the world's leading bioinformatics specialists for that new type of bioinformatics we're doing. No, I mean, point extremely well taken. I think, you know, and the analogies are, are definitely there, especially, you know, thinking about, you know, a lot of the analysts at ARC don't have traditional equity research backgrounds and very much for the same reasons that you've laid out. Like maybe in some way you have built up a certain way of thinking and it actually inhibits you from making certain discoveries or certain decisions. So most of us actually, you know, I have a chemical engineering background. So I think it plays well into trying to assess companies like QuantGene, you know, where to look, you know, where to see the issues for scaling. And, and I think that actually that brings up another thing that I wanted to just quickly touch on. You know, you mentioned this phrase from scratch. I'm assuming you're speaking about a lot of different things, but ostensibly maybe variant calling is one example. I know that there are always a broad set of tools that you can you know, maybe call them off the rack variant callers or things like that, that have been produced by, you know, great PhDs at universities and it's open source tech. So I'm wondering maybe if you could point me to a specific instance where companies in the liquid biopsy space may run into challenges moving forward if they're using something that is, you know, like I said, off the rack instead of bespoke or purpose built for doing this very next gen type of work that you're doing. Yes. So when you talk about bioinformatics specialists or variant calling specialists, what they normally are is people who are very well trained in these off-the-rack solutions, variant callers, right? That's a specialist. Now, if you want to rebuild that thing, they are not specialists in that. You need a different type of person. And these off-the-rack variant calling systems, you know, they are often designed for completely different applications. For example, whole genome sequencing. So they are designed for scale, there, for example, the alignment of one specific sequence you sequence, that's like a big deal for off-the-rack solutions. Like if you have any read, how can you align that or map it to the genome? Now, in our case, this is like not a problem because we have a very specific set of like a large number of specific targeted primers and we can identify them very quickly and we know exactly where they belong. So the mapping problem is something that, you know, is a huge part of how they are optimized, which is not even a thing for us. Whereas for us, the thing is, if there's a T and there should be a C, how sure can we be this is actually a T? And how sure mm -hmm. can we be it's not a sequencing error? How sure can we be it's not a polymerase error? So, you know, that the sequencing machine either like, you know, it was a C, but the sequencing, the laser that came back basically was read wrong and it thought it's a T, or it was actually a real T but it was built in by the polymerase after the fact, after the actual, you know, while the, the original fragment was a C. So these questions are just completely not answered, like completely. You have a, like a zero 
zero effect with conventional variant callers. They just don't know that. And mm -hmm. so you need to, you know, introduce barcoding. You have to, you know, our software system, for example, utilizes read twos. So you have two reads when you sequence. First read goes from left to right, and then the other read goes back. And most systems discard the read two because it's too much data. It's too complicated. And what we found out is that it's very important, the read two, because it's a double check on your sequence. And so our software basically is capable of taking both reads in and then matching them, which is a whole little ball game to do that because you have 10 billion each side on an S4 flow cell. So you have basically 10 billion lines of reads and then you have another 10 billion lines of reads and each one has a specific coordinate on the flow cell and you have to match them correctly. But then you have twice the information. But that information normally is not important because it's only important as a redundancy check. Like, you know, is it actually the same thing we read here? And so, you know, once you have a specific problem, like we have cancer detection and absolute single molecule precision, the way you optimize that system is just completely different. You know, you have then suddenly all these opportunities open up, you know, 95% of what we do would just be completely impossible by just tweaking an off the rack variant caller. And so if you can actually go in, in the source code and say, well, just read another fast Q file, where is the exact coordinate on the flow cell? Oh, here it's in this line. So every fourth line has these coordinates and it's only the last part of that. And then, you know, Robert can just hack that into the system and then basically say, okay, now I can match it. Success. And then we put right. synthetic files and check it. So it's really, it's a lot of just logical thinking and just hardcore software development that goes into that. Right. No, that makes sense. And so I think another thing that I wanted to spend a decent amount of time on is discussing your view of the future of, of precision medicine. And I think there are a lot of similarities in the way that we have thought about this problem, especially given the, you know, the integration and the clinical adoption of genomics. And you know, we view it as a scenario where it would start early with a germline predisposition, a very comprehensive understanding of the inherited genome. And moving along a patient's lifetime where, you know, each node in that process is cumulative and it allows you to build your base of knowledge and really deliver on the promise of what the Human Genome Project was going after, which is, you know, delivering the right patient, the right drug at the right time. And so I think that this is where there's kind of a divergence in ideology from a handful of different companies where they may be designing a test that is hopefully reimbursed by a payer and it exists as a single node and then we move on. And maybe you want to talk about Serenity as well, you know, your kind of product offering and commercialization strategy that does incorporate upstream, you know, things like genetic counseling and germline variation, which, you know, maybe it would be another interesting thing to talk about in terms of bringing in population scale or germline data into a machine learning structure, I think is another advantage that you have when trying to sort out the results of a liquid biopsy. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the most exciting things for me as a more systems guy, as an economist, is to look at the problem we actually solving here in terms of building that future of precision medicine, bringing something out that truly keeps people safer and more protected. Because it's these very different layers, like the very geeky stuff we just discussed. So the actual hardcore sequencing component, then there's a software layer on top of that. Then there's an AI layer on top of that to match these cancer patterns. And these are the three important tech layers. But then the next layer around that is the clinical layer. 
So the clinical layer is all about, you can invent all these things, but what about regulations? What about compliance and FDA and CLEAR? And what about the clinical community and the standard of care practice and what medicine can actually even digest right now in order to use that data and pass it on? And then there's the final layer, which is the business layer. And you know, that is a very important question. Who pays for that entire thing? And why do they pay for it? And what exactly do they pay for? And you know, what we found out over the last five years is you have to look at all of these layers at once. Because if you're weak on the tech layers, you just can't build advanced medical technologies, right? You, you can't deliver the clinical value if you don't have that hard technology layer figured out where you can do truly new things. If you fail on the clinical layer, you will just not get implemented in clinical practice. You will, you know, run a follow vibe of regulations or the medical community is not able to even work with your system. And if you get the business layer wrong, you know, you are strategically screwed. And that's actually something we see a lot. And I think, you know, that might be my favorite topic of all of them because that's what nearly everyone kind of ignores, in my opinion. If you have a commercial mechanic in your company where you are solely dependent on Medicare and commercial insurance, you are basically dependent on people who have a divergent interest from your key value that you deliver to the patient. This is, you know, if we as a company are built vertically integrated towards one single objective, and that is to keep you and your family safer. That's what we want to get measured against. If we do a better job in saving more people or keeping them healthier, we need to get more money for it. It needs to be aligned, these incentives. Now, if you are dependent on insurance, you are completely disaligned. You only get money if you save money, right? So do you want to save you know, lives and protect people or do you want to save insurance companies money? And I'm not saying that to bash anyone. It's just everyone who is a little bit familiar with capitalism understands how companies work. An insurance company has to make money and they make money by spending less on the expense side. They really don't like to take on new stuff that ramps up their costs. The same in even more extreme ways is true for Medicare, right? They don't have money. They have to save money. So going in and say like, why don't you spend a little bit more money and then you make people more healthy is not a great pitch. And there will be lots of problems that wait for you. So our decision, and we, you, know, you see that in the liquid biopsy space, that all these companies that try to cater to these conventional payer systems, if they start out as visionary companies that want to push the future of precision medicine forward, they always drop the ball and pivot towards a single cancer test and if possible, one that's already solved for, right? Because there's a gold standard, you can benchmark it, the reimbursement code is clear, and mm-hmm. then just do the same thing and do it a little cheaper. To do something disruptive and say, we want to change the way medicine is being done because we have this tremendous new potential of you know, billions and billions of new data points that are being completely non-utilized right now and utilize them to actually predict and prevent diseases and detect them early what you basically want to build is a totally new system that is kind of in a way, you know, totally buildable and also cost effective. But the problem is you need people to pay for it. And these people need to pay for it because they want to stay healthy. And that's why we decided, you know, we have to start this whole system as a self-payer system. Mm -hmm. Otherwise we built a flawed economic incentive. 
Well, and to your point, I mean, another thing that I think is important to maybe mention if we're going to be thinking about regulation and, and the payer infrastructure is that, and this is a really important distinction I, I think that people should understand, is that there is congressional protection for healthcare insurance if you have, you know, the results of a, like, let's just say a germline test that, you know, you have some pathological variant. That being said, there's not the same production for life insurance. So if you get reimbursement for a test like that, in many places, you know, you're at risk of having your life insurance policy voided versus doing the self-pay actually decouples you from that and puts you more in charge of your health care. And kind I mean, of, go ahead. I think that's a great example, Simon. I can tell you one, you know, the, the topic of privacy. And there is like this, you know, evil little sister or brother that comes with precision medicine. And you know, we literally collect billions of data points per sample, genomic data points. That's an amazing power to keep you protected and healthy and detect diseases early. But of course, it's also disturbing if it would leak into your life insurance, you know, if we find an elevated risk of neurodegenerative diseases and your employer hears about that, maybe they don't want to promote you anymore because they don't know how long you're with them. So privacy concerns for everyone who's educated about these things, you know, we take very seriously because they are serious. And we just had a customer who actually used our Serenity genetics system or wanted to use it, but decided for now to hold off. And he asked us, you know, if we can do it anonymously because he said, I don't want to give you my name. I don't want to give you any ID. I just want to do the test. And you sent me the kit. We send it anonymously. I pay in cash or Bitcoin. <laughs> and you report the things back without me knowing who I am. Can you do that? And we discussed it internally and we had like huge, you know, empathy for that person who is actually a very important person, by the way. I can't tell you mm-hmm. who is, but we know some things about him. And, you know, we are actually now implementing that in Serenity in our consumer facing solution, genetic mm. intelligence solution, that we will have fully anonymous testing. We don't even know who you are. And, Interesting. And I think that is part of the future of precision medicine. Is this maybe using something like homomorphic encryption to kind of have it de-identified in both layers or is it a mixture of different things? Well, the good, I mean, when you think about it from a security perspective, you don't even need to have two fancy technologies, right? You just have to make sure you just don't have the information in the first mm. place. So it's all about, you know, I mean, we, it's kind of funny, but we helped figure out the whole system. You basically go to a CVS, you buy your Visa debit card prepaid and use that to order the test because it's completely anonymous. I use a PO box and get the kit. You put, you know, John Doe as a name, which is compliant actually. And we just feed it back in a counseling session where we don't need to see you and you can use a VPN. So at that second, we don't need big encryptions because you're not even, you're not right. connected. In your identity is not yeah. in the system. And I guess and if it's self-pay and you're not working through insurance, then yeah, that makes sense. Okay. I mean, of course, if you do insurance, good luck with this whole thing. And that's, yeah. that's exactly, that's just one aspect of, you know, that whole logic. I mean, Serenity Genetics Intelligence costs you $99 a month. So it's a $1,200 product. That's our germline intelligence product that is ongoing. So you get continuous updates with latest medical research if anything happens, if anything is found out that affects you. And protect is our kind of premium plan where we also add liquid biopsy. That's mm. 199. And so, you know, both of these plans would take us 10 to 20 years to get that approved by insurance. And 
billions of dollars in clinical trials to get to a level of clinical evidence that forces insurance to reimburse it. Yeah. And not to cut in, but I, I think you hit on something really important that I just want to, you know, maybe play out the devil's advocate perspective, because I think we share, you know, the desire to always be acting in a medically responsible way and not stir up, you know, more trouble than we start with. So I agree. I, I think that, you know, there are a couple things that I would think about, but the first is, you know, going after a pan cancer liquid biopsy is so new and so space age that the infrastructure and the statistical power that you would have to demonstrate is gargantuan. It's monolithic. And it's also extremely difficult to design. And it takes a long time to produce that survivability data in a randomized control trial that you would need to get over some of the, you know, more pressing, let's call them clinical trial biases that you have for screening. Things like lead time bias or overdiagnosis are two that I'm thinking of. So I can definitely understand your point of view when you say this is a 10 or 20 year endeavor to get insurers to actually, you know, wake up to the power of using NGS for early cancer detection. But at the same time, you know, if your call point is, let's say, you know, a large corporation or an individual, right, it is going to be important that you do have clinical data in support of your assay and the actual kind of you know, material improvement or life extension that you have based on, you know, the platform of early detection. So I'm wondering, when it comes to the process of producing that clinical evidence and packaging it and delivering it, you know, you're going to be held to the same, you know, degree of scrutiny as somebody else maybe pursuing the insurance route, or is that wrong? Like, I'm just thinking about it in terms of, you know, if you're not going through CMS, do you think it's important to have the FDA stamp of approval if you're going to be selling directly to patients? The reason I'm asking is, you know, to your earlier point about security, it's something that people are concerned about when doing a genetic test. And I'm thinking about all the other kind of questions an individual might have around something as new and as innovative as Serenity is. Absolutely. So I think, you know, when it comes to these questions, the level of clinical evidence needed for X, right, for a liquid biopsy pan cancer, for example, or multi-cancer, I think there's a lot of fake science out there. Right? It's, most of these things are not scientific questions. They are questions of judgment and incentives. Of course, you need clinical data, and of course, you need to show things work. But what is the extent that you have to show? Do you need 200,000 patients in like two cohorts over 10 years to show economic outcomes, which is the key word here? Mm. Or do you just need to show, you know, that's the most extreme case, that it's a multi-billion dollar study and it's a 10-year-plus study. Or... Do you just need you know, early stage cancer patients that you actually source and a blinded study versus a control cohort? And can you show that you can effectively separate these two types of patients, which is exactly what we did in a 10,000 patient trial right now ongoing. And so I'm the biggest fan of clinical data, but there is a big question. I think when you look at these different perspectives, here's exactly where this incentive comes in, the incentive structure, who you talk to. You know, if you are the affected patient, the level of evidence required for you to want that test is completely different because you're not saying, well, prove to me that if I implement that in the United States and pay for 100 million people that I save money. That's not your problem. As a patient, you say, well, prove to me that you effectively detect early stage cancers because that's what I'm concerned about. And the level of evidence required to keep the patient happy is infinitely lower, right? If you go to a patient who is concerned of cancer and you show, look, we did a 5,000 patient study, let's say, and there were, 
you know, 200 pancreatic cancer early stage patients in there and then a whole bunch of other cancer patients. And we blinded this data set and, you know, we were able to identify, let's say, you know, 80% of these stage one and two pancreatic cancer patients and clearly distinguish them from the control patients. And out of, you know, 3,000 control patients, we only call 10 as pancreatic cancer. That will be probably enough for that person who's afraid of pancreatic cancer to say, well, mm -hmm. let's just do that test. I think that's sufficient. I know there can be mistakes and it's not perfect, but I'm also not going into chemotherapy after I do your test. There are many steps in between. Do right. I want that additional data point? You know, is, is a 90 and 90 specificity sensitivity or like a 98 and even 50% sensitivity, is that enough for me to say I'm paying you know, $2,000 a year for that level of insight, for that added layer of insight? Absolutely. Is Medicare going to say, are you crazy? Like come back when this is at 100% and costs 200 bucks? Yeah, absolutely. These are just completely different incentives. I see. No, that makes sense. And then so maybe if we look at the third group that I had mentioned, maybe the corporate level, like if you were trying to onboard say 100,000 employees under, you know, some sort of corporate structure. And the call point is, you know, whoever's in charge of benefits for that company, would you maybe guess it's somewhere in between Absolutely. a payer and an individual, you know, but it's just, it's a greenfield yeah. opportunity. And it's also really attractive. I'm sorry. It's also really attractive for the company as well. If they can, you know, hire people and say, Hey, look, we have this benefit. Exactly. Sam. So we totally nailed it. That's why you're an analyst at ARC. Uh, that's exactly the case. It's right in between because it's not a black or white thing. I think it's important for people in general in that new area of medicine to understand that the way we do medicine right now, it's not just science. I always have to laugh when people say it's science. It's about incentive systems and economic systems, and that determines ultimately. The question if the man or woman in charge of deciding if they buy your test their basic bias, right, is absolutely decisive for the level of evidence they want from you. It has nothing to do with science. It has something to do with what they want. If they say, okay, I don't want you, let's figure out how I create a problem that you cannot overcome. I don't want you because you cost money and I don't like that you cost money. Or if they say, I want you because you might save my life. I don't care about the money. I want to be safe. You're dealing with a completely different scenario that leads to completely different so-called scientific requirements because these people want something from the outset that gives them a huge bias. One wants to be protected and the other one wants to not spend money. And mm -hmm. when it comes to employers, there you have the whole spectrum, right? If you go to, I don't know, I read Airbnb, for example, benefits, they pay you up to $10,000, probably not anymore, but last year, up to right. $10,000 for books just to keep you educated, which is amazing. So do you think Airbnb, if they pay $10,000 for books as benefits to every employee, would hesitate to say, well, of course, we pay $2,000 for cancer protection? If you go to another employer, I don't want to name any names, but someone who's very large and who has more lower salaried employees, they are going to say, well, I'm definitely not going to spend $2,000 in digital benefits. And so that right. economic consideration, I think, is completely neglected in healthcare and biotech because people think everything is so-called scientific when in fact it's about economics and the basic bias of the buyer. Do you right. want to do something good and cool for your people or do you want to cut costs? And I'm not saying either one is wrong, right? I have empathy with Medicare and you know, they have to solve a problem, 
But if that's your bias, then, you know, you will give liquid biopsy a very hard time. No, absolutely. And, you know, maybe something else on that that just is sort of coming up for me is I have no doubt that there are many companies and many individuals that would fall into that, you know, going through the rubric that you just laid out would be ready and willing to, you know, to pay for this service, this subscription service. But obviously, you know, Medicare's purpose in place is to, you know, be the shield for the long tail of individuals who are not able to afford something like that. So in terms of the issue of healthcare disparity, how are you thinking about, you know, maybe having any sort of flexibility with pricing or the structure, or maybe this is a longer term goal that maybe once you've, you know, absorbed enough volume to suppress COGS down to a certain level, COGS in this case for some is, you know, your internal cost of goods sold. What are you thinking about with that in the long term? Yeah, I think for us at Quanchin, we would definitely do not want to be a premium medicine you know, company long term where we just say, oh, it's only for people who can afford 200 bucks a month. You know, that's also why our pricing initially is already low compared to others. So we try to always get the price down as much as possible, but we totally understand that there are people who can't afford $200 a month. So for us, it's really about a long-term objective here. And the long-term objective, I have this mantra within a decade, you know, the objective to extend human lifespan by 10 years within the next 10 years, because we have the technology to do it. So now it's about the question, how do we bring that to everyone? And when you take a step back and think in first principles about this bigger problem, you have technology components that enable that today. They are not being deployed. How do you get that to everyone? Kind of the plan or roadmap that we see is, well, you have to start by building these components and you have to build a system that has positive margins, gross margins, and that allow you to build and scale a business. And what that means is you have to start with a self-payer market. You have to price it effectively so enough people can afford it, but you also make some money off it so you can grow the company and advance the technology. And that notion of technological advancement is something that's kind of unknown in medicine a little bit. No one thinks like that. But, you know, we totally expect that our tests will be vastly more effective, our system, and cheaper in five years from now, if we can stick to growing the company and investing more in R&D. And our strategy is start with a self-payer segment, get to, you know, a couple of hundreds of thousands of members and mm -hmm. from there, you have the evidence required to actually get Medicare. But this way, you don't finance it by dumping you know, $2 billion of venture capital down some hole and being very inflexible in actually advancing the technology. Instead, you are positive, you make the same amount of money, and you can rapidly innovate and advance the technology because you're dealing with self-payers directly. They mm -hmm. allow us to actually improve the system every six months, whereas Medicare would force us to lock it down for 10 years. So yeah, and, and sorry, I think that's a really critical thing that I want to highlight and maybe broaden the discussion to talk about, you know, your general ideas around some of the bigger drivers and trends in precision medicine and the attitude that management and management teams are going to have to have to be successful, you know, in the next five to 10 years. And the first one is, and maybe it's just a little bit of a pet peeve of mine, but whenever I hear about, you know, people describing sequencing as being turnkey or plug and play where you can, you know, get a piece of equipment and push volume through it and get an answer. You know, I, I like to talk about sequencing more as a workflow and involving everything from sample accessioning through to 
interpretation and report writing and you know interfacing with a clinician or a patient and the literally the thousands of inefficiencies along that process that you need to invest in and innovate to you know make sure that you have maximum operating leverage as you begin to scale i think you know the point is well taken that you know instead of taking venture capital money if you're actually pushing volume through the system you know you can work on and enhance things like you know better target capture or, you know, a better back-end system for variant interpretation, et cetera, et cetera. So maybe with that all in mind, from your perspective, what are some of those changes or trends or maybe areas that you feel like are ripe for a lot of kind of innovation, you know, along your workflow, but just maybe we'll broaden it to those that are doing precision medicine generally? Yeah, I think, you know, what we experience in, in medicine at large in healthcare, with especially medicine and biotech, is the potential for a major disruption. And what's underlying that disruption is really, it comes down to sequencing and computing power and AI. That's also why we are doing exactly that. I think there's a little bit also happening in imaging and also in pharma with CRISPR, but in combination, there are actually a handful of key technologies that disrupt the space, theoretically, at least. That you know, disruptive technology potential that allows us to see billions of times deeper into the human body, like literally billions of times, as opposed to standard medicine, has an enormous potential. And we are just, you know, what we are doing currently is just one reflection of that. That stands in total opposition to how business is being done in healthcare and in biotech. And so I think that is the problem we have to solve for. We have to build a truly disruptive company here on the tech side but that's kind of straightforward. You know, smart tech people and teams get that done. But if you don't innovate also on the business model side, you are screwed mm. because you run against a wall because everything you do has a 10-year you know, iteration cycle time. You need a you know, two-week iteration cycle time, not 10 years. But if you always run a $2 billion study for Medicare where you have to lock down the entire technology the whole time, you're not getting anywhere. It's a massive, massive knockout for innovation. And so, you know, the way we view QuantChain, and we have a lot of discussions with investors about that because most biotech investors, they have a hard time wrapping their head around it. So it's more the, the tech crowd who gets it. You know, you need to build a lean startup thing, but that works on a very deep and complex tech stack. And so you need full vertical integration not just of the workflows, but of the entire system of business that you're doing. And that means everything flows from the interest and the value creation point of the patient. You need to deliver in the end a solution to concrete people and families that needs to keep them safer in a measurable way. And everything you do, your entire tech stack, all the AI and sequencing and you know, intelligence systems, in the end need to end at a point that the patient understands and is willing to pay money for, and you need to be able to prove your point with clinical data. If you don't have that endpoint of economic value creation, that is the person who actually benefits from that, you cannot build that whole system. And I think that's, you know, if there's one insight that I think drives everything here, it's actually that. I don't know if that's sexy or not, but that's literally the insight that I think is the most important insight. You can have mm -hmm. all the tech in the world if you don't solve the problem that you have to get out of insurance, you cannot innovate. And you see that all the time, all these you know, great biotech 
entrepreneurs and companies they start they jump off and get a little seed funding from Andreessen or something and then do awesome stuff and then when the next level hits right it comes on okay how do we actually sell that and they make that decision okay let's get our insurance code they always die mm. or get completely mm. knocked off the rails sure sure and so you know maybe just in wrapping up there are a few more small things i wanted to touch on you know obviously we're recording this in a pretty unique period of time. And I'm curious to know if the COVID-19 situation, how it's impacted, you know, I, I know you're kind of in this period where you're about to push out a clinical study as well as, you know, broaden up kind of the presence of quant gene generally. Has that changed anything for you in terms of timeline or thinking or maybe how you interact with potential customers, whether they be individuals or employers? So COVID was actually, first we were a little bystanders and said, well, it's not our core expertise. We understand very well how the PCR tests work on COVID, but, you know, we were just continuing our path. I thought other people are going to solve the problem. And then here in LA and Southern California, we were very exposed to a lot of employers and also here the city council and some other people we work with. And we saw how this like you know, resulted in a complete logistics disaster. Like people just did not get tested and no one could get these tests out. And so, you know, a few weeks ago, we just decided, okay, let's help solve this problem. And we took a very systematic approach here in LA to wrap together all the resources in LA, all the laboratories, all the people at the front lines, and basically wrap that into a solution that we integrate now into Serenity as an employer solution. And that's a Great example of what I said previously, you know, we just had this very no-nonsense approach and said, like, all these tests and labs, you know, they don't help. What helps is a solution where an employer can come to us and we say, okay, you have 500 employees, you need tested, maybe weekly, you know, get them to one spot. We get there, we take the swaps before 5 p.m. and we return results by 9 a.m. next morning and we do it under $100 per employee. That was kind of the mission briefing at Quanchin. I told the team, let's get this done. Took us two weeks. We wrapped up all the resources and, you know, had it done. And, you know, we had great labs, great partners on all sides. But the ability to just wrap this up and come up with a solid economic model and make the logistics work, that was really the missing point that delayed that for weeks. And then we just jumped in. So that's something we are doing now here with a bunch of larger employers. We just kicked that off last week. And you would think that was a huge distraction, but it's a, I view it more as a great exercise because now it helps us get into conversations with employers mm -hmm. and it helps to help the community here to actually get that problem out of the way. Oh, no, that, that makes complete sense. So they're just getting a little bit more familiar with that, kind of how that interaction works and what it could mean for their employees. But just instead of COVID, it's cancer protection. Yeah, that makes sense. And so the last thing that I just quickly wanted to ask, you know, calling back to what I just said about Quanchin, for those people that are, are really interested maybe in the service or learning more about the company, the team, the approach, where can they have their antennas tuned to make sure that they're keeping up to date with the freshest and newest information? Yeah, I think it's always good to follow me on Twitter. I'm kind of more or less active on Twitter. So I'm trying to <laughs> keep everyone up to date. So it's twitter.com slash Joe Bhakti, J-O, and then B-H-A-K-D-I. I'm also happy if you have anyone, you know, employers or anyone listening who wants to know a little more details, you can also write me directly at jb at quanchin.com. And otherwise, you know, choose Serenity. So choose and then serenity.com. 
that's where we have the product. If you want to know more about, you know, how we present that. And I'm always happy to, you know, I just was on another podcast. It was very inspiring. I think Katie also was on that before me and the Pomp podcast I really like. Mm-hmm. So I'm, you know, I always invite people who, you know, are interested in innovation and principles of innovation across industries to reach out to me. I love these conversations. I think there's a lot to learn for all of us and a lot of knowledge to share with, you know, the investment community, but also corporate America, because we could achieve tremendous things if we just change a bunch of things we do every day. Right. Thinking. Yeah, no, and I think we have a lot of listener overlap between our podcast and Pomps. So I'm sure that if they haven't already checked that one out, they will. And I'm sure in the coming weeks and months, we'll probably, you know, feature QuantGene in a, in a newsletter, you know, is, is definitely something that I think, especially after the clinical results go public, is I think a great time to maybe reconvene and talk about that a little bit. But outside of that, Joe, it was a pleasure speaking. And I'm sure that we'll touch base again soon. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks, Simon, for being great at ARC and doing this podcast. And I really appreciate the work you're doing too. I think it's very important. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.